0: Dope Black, podcast. Dope Black Podcast.
1: Hello, guys, and welcome back to another Dope Black Dad Podcast. My name's Cameron, and I want to start off with this: manhood maturation is not yet achieved until you are building and supporting the minds of the next generation. And that's exactly what our guest today lives, breathes and personifies. Adrian's foundational purpose is the liberation, freedom and strengthening of African-Americans. For over 20 years, he has committed his life to the development of African-American youth and families by serving in multiple community capacities. As a student of history and family science, He positions the strength and resilience of African-American people as a reservoir of inspirational movement that offers the world an example of human triumph. The canvas of Adrian's professional experience is widespread. He creates community spaces of historical reflection and community dialogue, coordinates effective partnerships between youth and family serving programs, design and implement cultural specific family educational classes, develop evidence-based leadership projects for African-American um, youth and facilitates professional development workshops for the Twin Cities. Now hear this, Adrian's most prideful accomplishment is in his growth as a father of six and a mentor of many. Let me say that again for the people in the <laughs> back. <laughs> father of six. Adrian, how are you, my man?
0: I'm good. Thank you, uh, Cameron, for having me on. I appreciate for being here. I appreciate the opportunity. So um, I got to check to see who that person is that you, <laughs> that you introduced because that's, that's a powerful individual. But um, I'm a humble individual and I sometimes always want to give a little caveat when people um, get the opportunity did read my bio is that I'm a black father and I'm a black man. I'm an African descendant who just loves his people. And that's it. I serve my people, all the accolades and awards and the degrees, all of that are just tools and just mechanisms to serve African descendants. And that's it. I love compassionately. I'm fixated. I'm obsessed with the development, the inspiration, the history and the power of African descendants across the globe. And that's that's it.
1: Oh, man, I love that. I love that. So how about we start off with you just kind of like um, taking us on a journey, basically, of like the key moments that have kind of brought Mm. this whole passion and purpose that you live through now?
0: Mm, Absolutely. And so there's a few things, just a couple. That I think were significant um, for me. For one, I start in my high school era when I met my mentors, my significant mentors who became transformative in my life. Um, Ed Irwin, Tony Byers, Shayla Lindsay. And I know for the world to be able to hear those names, they'd be like, okay, these are anonymous, we don't know what it is. But they're they're people who are like in every community where we see African descendants who have the value of pouring into the next generation. They're the unsung leaders who says, I'm going to spend time, I'm going to nurture, I'm going to cultivate and mentor this young uh, man, this young woman into their being. And so they know who themselves. And that's what they were for me. And And that significant point opened up the world for me. It was the orientation of me understanding who I was and trying to understand who I was as a young growing boy into a man, but also, What is my relationship to my peoplehood? Because before that time, it was always filled with a lot of negative connotation. And they exposed me to a correct orientation of what it means to be a black man. What does it mean to be an African descendant? What does it mean to define my manhood by accurate uh, definitions? And then later on, I became a father. Um, And fatherhood for me was not just kind of this Um, um, inauguration into this well responsible, powerful role. Um, Oftentimes it came with a bit of some experiences of trauma. And like most um, Black men or African descendants in this country, fatherhood is oftentimes a transition of pain, it's a transition of fear, it's a transition of uncomfortability and a lot of rechecking and reflecting of ourselves. Um, And so that's how it was for me. It's no unique point. And for me to be able to move into that and have to go undergo this new challenge into my manhood was another significant moment. I think another piece was when I finally found kind of like my positioning and the way I wanted to serve young people and serve uh, uh, African descended families in Minnesota, and that was important because um, working with my mentors in a community setting, I started to see some powerful skill sets and tools in myself that made me committed compassionately committed to serving my people. And the last piece was the birth of my sons, um, to be there in the room with them um, and to experience the whole process. And it wasn't even only the birth, it was the prenatal experience too. Like, and being able to be at the doctor's appointments and to listen to the heartbeat and to, I got to the point by, by my third um, appointment with my wife I'm control. I'm orchestrating the ultrasound, putting the cream on. I'm listening to the heartbeat. I'm making the adjustments because <laughs> the doctor, the midwife that we was working with was so familiar and comfortable with me being there that it was just became a, a routine piece for me. And so being a part of that experience with my wife on the heart nurturing, reading to them and just being a part of that experience, it was transformative to me in terms of understanding my position as a father and knowing what I need to do to re- challenge myself to grow as a man, to grow as a father. So those four particular points was kind of, I would say those are the critical pieces that set the stage into why I do what I do.
1: Okay, do you live in Minnesota now?
0: I do, I do. Okay, I cool. live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, yes, sir.
1: And you said sons, do you have no daughters? I do. I saw- okay, okay, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. I was like, six yeah. sons? Wow, you've yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know,
0: <laughs> I probably would be sitting here like this. So my oldest uh, daughters, my oldest children are my daughters. I love them. I got a, a set of twins that I've been raising since they were seven months. I adopted them. And then oh, cool. I have a daughter with uh, that particular person um, and a son with them. And then um, that's a previous engagement. And then I have um, my current wife um, who I have two sons with now. So the older three are my daughters and the younger three are my sons.
1: Right. Three of three. Perfect balance yep. at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm done.
0: The factory is closed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I stopped at two. How you got to six, I don't even know. But <laughs> um, so I want to just kind of d- talk a bit more about um, more your first child, uh, because the kind of main topics I wanted to speak about today was around the kind of um, the way people parent. Um, as we've spoken before. So, um, yeah, when you had your first child, talk to me a bit more about that kind of experience of being a parent, having to parent and, and guide your child through the life that we live in um, today.
0: Mm, mm. You know, moving into fatherhood and as a parent, um, it, it had its challenges. Um, I was blessed to be raised by my father. Um, I didn't grow up with my mother. I left my mother when I was six. And so while my father you know, I was a single parent father. Um, He did the best that he could to role model. He couldn't be as instructional and as intentional as he wanted to be, but he role modeled. And so I walked into my fatherhood at least with that internal commitment, even though there was a lot I did not know how to do, okay? Um, But I was, uh, so my older sister, had two daughters. I was a phenomenal uncle. And so before I became a father, I was able to really kind of step into this responsibility as an uncle of taking care of um, supporting certain things in terms of their early childhood, um, uh, babysitting, um, being responsible for food. And so, so there's certain aspects that was kind of there. But as a father, when I stepped into that as a parent, it was a totally different domain. And so it was like, it was a you know on around the clock thing. Um, it was uh, recognizing that I had now transitioned to an extension that I had another mouth. I had another set of ears. I had another set of eyeballs. I had another belly that I had to make sure that they had some security. Um, as a father, I had to start thinking a little bit more deeper about where I'm gonna make my income and my economics. And how I'm going to orchestrate my time. I had to think about things even beyond today. I had to think about what am I setting up for them for the future? And that was hard for me because in my current economic setting, moving into fatherhood, I didn't have things financially set up at all. I was just fresh out of high school. Um, I barely had enough to make ends meet for myself, let alone bring in my adopted uh, daughters and my daughter who I had with her at the time. It was, it was a complicated transition. So beginning, fatherhood for me came with a lot of experiences that challenged me in such a way that made me say, you either gonna stand up to this or you're gonna run away from this obligation.
1: And what would you say was kind of like, so for me, it's kind of like, uh, one, firstly, your stories are amazing because you obviously hear the, the backstory of it being normally a single mom. So it's quite cool to hear mm-hmm. you know, the single father side of things. You don't hear too much of that. I think is amazing um and obviously it's clear that you know your father did a great job because he's he's created you who who's now able to follow on that those same kind of um ideas and 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 life um what's the word like um h- how you want your childhood life morals that's the word life mm-hmm. morals yeah mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so let, let's talk a bit about um what, what we kind of mainly wanted to speak about today which was aggressive parenting so for someone who doesn't mm-hmm. understand what that is because um, when i heard it i was afraid for i was like oh my god am i aggressive parent you kind of like instantly go, am, I, am i that mm-hmm. <laughs> what,
0: mm-hmm. what is aggressive parenting aggressive if we look at it in, in scholarship they make a distinction between authoritarian and authoritative parenting and authoritative parenting is kind of what we would probably turn aggressive or, or a parenting is, is this, this type of parenting. And there's a certain way you can in- interpret aggressive. Aggressive, in a general sense, in scholarship, is that it's it comes off in a very intrusive way. It's demanding. It's it's controlling. Is oftentimes parenting out of a fear. There's a, a aggression there. There's um there's a complicated discipline practices. Um, there's a kind of like an encroaching. Um, there's helicoptering, what we call helicoptering parent, where you're constantly over the child and controlling and orchestrating what the child can and can't do. It's aggressive parenting. When we uh, sometimes transmit our own pains and our own experience and an adversities in our own life onto our children, that's aggressive parenting. Um, Discipline practices. Some people will interpret aggressive parents as um. Uh, um, um physical punishment, um, harsh punishment. And so that can be considered aggressive parenting. Um, but some can say that if we adjust and make it a more expansive way of looking at aggression as a term, as it associates the parenting, aggressive parenting could more, more or less be assertive parenting, where we're more intentional, where we're more um, reflective and we're thinking more harder and, um, and more focused on how we want to show up as a parent. So it may means that we showing up as a functional parent, but we're aggressive in how we want to show up as a functional parent. But in the general sense, aggressive, it has a negative connotation in terms of parenting. And so as a father, sometimes that may come off as being a little bit more physical. It could come off as being a little bit more harsh. It could come off as being um, demanding it could come off as being controlling um, that type of aggressive parenting and fatherhood can oftentimes lead to a lot of negative consequences in the child's development
1: yeah so it's not just about like aggressive parenting isn't just about like smacking your child or hitting your child it can be right. through the words and just the behaviorals that you have um, around your child and stuff like that and um, yeah when I, when I heard I was doing this I was very interested this is for those listening I hope you're enjoying this but also this is for me because I want to make sure I'm doing my parenting right mm. Um, mm. so I'm going to ask a lot of personal questions hopefully they can relate to it too yes yeah. um, mm-hmm. Because I, I want to do better. It's all about on your way to becoming a dope black dad, right? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so I, I don't hit my kids. I never have. I never will. I, I don't think my mum really hit me if I can remember. Maybe she smacked me so hard I forgot. But I don't remember mum hitting me either. Um, mm-hmm. But on the like aggressive tonality side of things, I grew up in a, a childhood where there was a lot of screaming and shouting and being told off in that way, like threatening to hit you or that kind of stuff. I don't so much threaten my kids, but I can shout quite often. And I've always Mm -hmm. been like really fearful of, oh, I need to stop doing that. How can someone change those patterns? Because it's all I know. Like all I've ever seen is that I know it's wrong, but I don't know what's right, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. what's kind of your advice on like, how can someone not be aggressive
0: or or change behaviors that they know are wrong, but they don't know how to change Mm -hmm. it? Good question. And so oftentimes the first, first piece that we advise in terms of adjusting your parenting practices is to do your self-care first. So there's three components in this. Um, When it comes to parenting, there's self-care, there's self-reflection, and then there's self-development, okay? So all three of those. The first self-care piece goes into how are you showing up at that particular moment, time and space with that child. If you feel the urge that you need to um, 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 yell at your child, then you need to take that moment. It has to be a reflection time. Make a commitment to yourself that anytime you have to discipline or re-correct your child, you try to do it with a poised, calm, nervous system. We say nervous system, but it just means your demeanor. and just means that you're gonna do this from a position where you've had some deep breaths and you have a more relaxed tone in your physical posture so that what you're communicating to your child is coming from a calm, more centered place, okay? The self-reflection piece is that we have to look back and where does that come from for you? Because you got to figure out what's the activation points. Like, what did you experience growing up that made you make the connection subconsciously that yelling is the best way to convey some messages to someone? And you have to write this stuff down. This is what we call soul writing. Um, My mentor and coach Uh, teachers, we call it soul running because we have to do that reflection piece so we can become keenly conscious and aware of what our activation points is. Once we become aware of that, it becomes like a prefrontal cortex thing that becomes habitual. We start to see it in our interactions with our our children. And we know when that's we're getting there. And then the self-development component is we make a commitment to practice some new ways of communicating to our child. So when they're at that point, whether it's like they in that no phase was no, no, no. Or they're asking why for everything. Well, now we know this is a little activation point for me. So now I'm going to take some opportunities today and then tomorrow and then Friday. And I may have to journal this or just keep note of this or have a conversation with my wife on this that this is what I did when they did the no thing. This is what I did when they asked the why thing or when they just chose to do what they want to do. I had to recorrect them. And this is how I respond in that way, in a more calm way. And what it does is it makes you mindful of your practice in parenting. So we're going to become mindful parentings in this piece. And one of the things that you highlighted earlier is that I want to make sure I'm doing this and doing this well and getting better at it. And that's the key thing about parenting, especially as African descendants, is that we evolve in our parenting over time. You don't start off as a perfect parent right off the bat. That's not, there's nobody who start off as a perfect parent or just got everything together. You evolve as a parent. And when we're going back to the kind of aggressive parenting pieces, this is what they associate as the authoritarian style of parenting in research, is that you learn to adapt and adjust your parenting on the experience of where your child is at. So the need of your child as an early childhood at three, four years of age, it's going to be different when they're 17. Or nine. And it will be different when they're 11, 12, 13. And it's going to be different when they're 17, 18, 19. So you have to, is that self-care, self reflection and self-development going to allow you the, the, the practices to be able to say hi, adjusting and forming to where my house needs and development is. And then that does that not only the rotation, but day-to-day practice of saying I need to be mindful every day and practicing how I want to talk to my child that does not have to come off with raising our voice and yelling. And sometimes we're going to slip. Because we're not perfect beings, we're not perfect parents. We're mindful parents, mindful parenting, and we're going to slip sometime. But in, in that slipping, it gives us more information of like, am I, you know, practicing this well? What what caused that slip? Oh, okay, she did this or he did this. So now I know that when they're in that space, let me take my five deep breaths, and now I'm gonna go up to them and calmly talk to them. Children, not only they don't always hear us vocally. As a matter of fact, very little do children pay attention to what we're saying to them. They pay attention to our eyes, our face expression, our body language, our posture, and everything like that. Children communicate through all of the, um, what we call um, the somatic messages, very little through the words. That's why sometimes when we just, we were giving them some type of direction, we're like, I just said that to you. And they're just looking at you like, yeah, I know you said it, but I chose to do what I wanted to do anyway because how we communicate is through our bodies and through role modeling and being a part of that experience with them and making sure that we're giving them the breath of being able to push boundaries and make mistakes anyway because they're going to do that. They're children. They're figuring out the world. So they're going to push some boundaries. They're going to tell that, no, I don't want to do that sometimes. No, don't, you know, they're going to ask why. They're going, you're going to tell them to do something and they're going to do it anyway because they have to see what is the limit? Uh, I want to try this and sometimes they're, they're oftentimes motivated by these urges and instincts and that's okay we're creating the perimeters, perimeter for them to experience the world so we have to know, make sure we're aware of our activation points that's historical for us and start to be mindful of how we breathe and practice through that so I'll stop there because I hope that answered your question
1: that answered that question tenfold. That was amazing, Ray. I'm definitely <laughs> gonna put, bring those in. Um, yeah, because I definitely find like um, like like today, I can't remember what my daughter was doing. I think she was speaking to my wife and then she asked why, but it sounded like she was saying like, Why are you telling me to do that? And I was like, right. And I caught myself and I was like, Let me leave it, <laughs> let me leave it. So yeah. I am I am feeling myself, kind of notice it and going, Oh, calm yourself, Cameron, like um, but right. it's all it's all in good faith. Um, I, I kind of wanted to ask the question so in, in your kind of professional opinion where do you think this whole aggressive parenting kind of what, what caused it where has this all come from
0: mm, you know there's various different theories there's various different ways um, based on my research and I'm, 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 and I'm not going to say that I have the 100% sound research but based on my historical analysis of our parenting practices of African descendants across the globe is that our unique experience with having to deal with colonization, deal with slavery, deal with repression has oftentimes restricted our ability to create healthy functioning families. In the Americas, family function didn't exist at one point in time. It was your sole purpose was to produce more labor forces in order to be, um, create means of production on a field, on what, um, what's my guy, Um, 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 Howard French calls the prison industrial camps. And so the idea of being a father and a mother was subservient to what the slave master and the plantation owner and the overseer needed in terms of functioning beings on a piece. And so in that environment for for a, a century or so, The idea of being able to relate to your child in a healthy way is oftentimes was to correct that child to make sure that they don't do anything to lose their life. And it subjected our relationship dynamic with our children in a very survivalistic mode. Now, did we adapt? There were some adaptions and maladaptions, but that maladaption showed up in a lot of aggressive forms of that parenting existence. And we had to adapt to the environment that was often projected upon us from these conditions that we were owned and property of. And so in those spaces, we adapted these ways of communicating and rearing our children for survival, for production, labor means, and to acculturate in an environment that oftentimes did not validate their existence. And so in those spaces, we've encoded not through culture, but through traumatic survival, this means of kind of taking care of our children, talking to our children and parenting in our children that oftentimes come from pain. And Rezman Menikin in his book, um, um, My Grandmother's Hands, he says that um, we, we experience trauma and this trauma passed down from other traumas. And in these small situations, they're traumatic exchange from one generation to a next. But when you have groups of people with this exact similar trauma, it starts to look like culture, but it's not culture. It's just a pain of how we've learned to relate and operate as parents to our children. So the aggression, the the physical uh, uh, punishment, all of these different forms was these traumatic adaptions to an environment that we lived in that was oftentimes violent and hostile against us. And I think you'll see similar, similar, if not the exact same dynamics of African descendants across the globe in various places where we've been oppressed. We see these same tentacles of how they've informed and shaped and reshaped our parenting practices for our children.
1: That's crazy. I never knew that. That is, But it makes, now you're saying it, it's kind of like put in those two pieces together and it's like, oh my god, that actually makes sense. That is so it's mm-hmm. so it's almost it's it's deeper than just like one, two levels of parenting. It's like generational, like generations before us and before us. And it that's crazy. So the yeah. trauma, so trauma isn't just from like what I may have experienced, it's what my great great grandparents and I'm still able to um connect to that trauma. That's yes. mental.
0: That yes. is truly yes. mental. Yes. Absolutely. That's it, Cameron. And oftentimes, sometimes, and this is where it gets complicated, there's research that's developing this in the last 10 years, but sometimes the activation pieces that make you respond to your child when she says this or does this, sometimes that might not even become from your own social experience. Sometimes that might be the experience of your parents and grandparents who had to adapt and it's still encoded in your nervous system. And so that's a different conversation. That's when we're talking about epigenetics and all this theory of how DNA encoding kind of sometimes hold traumatic spaces and reactions to the nervous system, certain environmental stimuli. That's something else. But we see that now in scholarship that is showing up in the ways we interact with beings. And I got this theory now that it's, it's very um, integral when we're talking about the interaction of ourselves with our parenting. Because our children pulls things out of us. Think about this, Cameron. There's things that you've felt since your child has been born, some things that you felt and thought and experienced that you probably have not even thought about and felt since you was a little child. And now when you see it reflected and mirrored in your child, it's pulling things up that you normally wouldn't respond in that way. And that's because there's this dynamic of how when children are born, they pull up things that are kind of embedded inside of us that we kind of just put on the shelf and didn't really have to deal with parenting does that (laughs) parenting pulls things up from our generation and sometimes our previous generations and generation before that that we still have to unearth and when we're and that's and it kind of begs this conversation of healing this um, breaking transmissions of uh, generation cycles you know it goes into that conversation but parenting does that because these are little human beings. They're spirits. They're ancestors that's we re- re- merging in themselves, and they're coming with their own unique temperaments, their own spiritual kind of um, 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 talents and and souls and personalities, and they're causing an interaction with our own being that's requiring us to kind of go deeper and say, like, what 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 what, what, what did my people experience that might be showing up? in this interaction right now. So yes, sir, I mean, a, a lot of that is there and we're not conscious of that when we're parenting because we're just looking at, we got a mouth of feet, we got to put them to take them to school, we got to make sure they get to their activities, we got to do these things. But in every single second of our lives when we're interacting with our children and our wife, all of our ancestors' experiences is showing up in our interaction. I don't know about
1: anyone else listening, but I feel like I've just been in the matrix and you've just handed me the red or blue pill and I'm like, oh my god I'm so scared to see my kids now. I'm like
0: You won't. You won't. You won't because once you once you absorb that pill, you can't undo it. You won't. That's true. So So what kind of like
1: healthy parenting Um, stuff can you do to kind of like counteract this kind of aggressive parenting or to avoid Mm -hmm. making sure this doesn't happen because like you said it can just be little nuances that happen every um here there and Mm -hmm. everywhere so what's kind of like healthy practices we can kind of
0: adopt Uh, absolutely and so um particularly fathers um because um regardless of where we're at african descendants black men oftentimes show up with emotional development that may be a little bit impaired because society tends to block us from being able to fully express the the mature development of emotions. And so we as fathers, as African descendants have to show up in a way where we create, and it goes back to those three principles I'll talk about, we have to create methods of self-care every single day and every single week. We have to know what it's like to tap into what is my, I'm feeling right now, especially as a father. You got to know what your feelings are and the dimensions of the feeling world so you know how to cultivate that in your son and your daughter. If the only thing you can interpret is mad, anger, um, sadness, a little bit of sadness, if that, and happiness, and that's, the, that's as far as your dimension, emotional dimensionality can go, then you're not going to help your children uh, cultivate healthiness in their development. So we have to do that as fathers. Self-care and the practice of that becomes important. The self-reflection piece means that we have to start, we have to think back as fathers. um, What was it like for me growing up with my father? my mother? What is my relationship like aunties and uncles? What are some of the messages that I've received? What are some of the things that I did that caused me to get in trouble? How did I show up? How much of that do I want to carry that into my fatherhood right now? And how much do I want to be intentional to make sure I'm providing something that they couldn't provide back then? And so that's a key critical piece because that self-reflection piece gives us the information of how we can be empowered to make some moves now. The self- Um, development piece is setting a chart. Okay, I am aware of this is who I am and this is how I'm showing up. I'm aware that I'm in a growth piece, aware that when this happens in my child and my son, my daughter does this, this activates me. So I gotta be conscious of that. And I gotta know how to make sure to navigate that and practice some new ways of doing that. And then from there, you're setting a course, you're setting a chart on how you could show up every day and practicing. But the key thing with that is that being mindful of that, being aware of that is only one is, is only one part of the puzzle. The other piece is being intentional of what you want to do with your children every single day, every week, every year. And that's setting routines, setting rituals because children grow and develop in systems. okay. Family process is a system. So what do we do when we wake up in the morning? Well, we hug each other, greet each other. We may have a prayer and then we go into the bathroom and we brush our teeth together. Got to get our face washed. Now we got to go get our clothes up. And so when children know what is ordered in their day, it helps their brain and the neurotransmitters and the neurons to create these synapses that help them to be in a groove of a certain... To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A certain way of, of, of life processes, it gives them a sense of security of how to interact with their mother and their father and the world around them. So when they get into spaces where, you know, it's a little chaotic and they feel a little insecure, they have an internal sense of security based on what mom and dad established with them in home that allows them to interact in these insecure spaces from a grounded place. And so creating routines and rituals with them every single day, every week, every month, and every year, whatever it is, helps them to develop a deep sense of security for themselves. Another component that we can do is understanding the developmental process of what's natural for children. And there's a lot of different information out there, websites, books, and, um, um, and and just kind of charts to help us to understand what what can I expect out of my child from zero to three? And what's normal between zero and five? What happens between three and six? What happens between, hey, I'm using these chronological ages because it's not really based on the age, but you could see the wide range of it. What's normal between seven and 10 and 10 and 14? understanding these different stages of infancy early childhood middle childhood pre-adolescence adolescence teenage years late uh, early uh, adulthood or late teenage years and then adulthood and going forward you start to know what's expected and when you know what's kind of normal and expected and what's culturally appropriate and developmentally appropriate for your child then it makes it easier for you to move into these interactions where just like okay that's kind of normal i've read this this is kind of quintessentially normal for them in this space so i have some information on how to interact with this type of thinking this interacting with this emotions i have this interacting with this physical changes with these emotional disposition i have some information on it i know how to re- react and it gives you the information to imagine yourself back at that stage and what you may have needed as a father. And I'm like, okay, I remember when I was 16 and I remember this was my experience. I remember when they I started going through my socialization experience with my peers and how everything my friends was doing was, it became important to me. And you know how to navigate that now. And you know, that's like, that's, that's pretty normal and typical. For this developmental stage And it gives you A lot more empowerment To be able to decrease Your level of aggression And how you show up with them And be able to be Mindfully aware As you're parenting And approach them With some compassion And to know As long as I'm staying the course They eventually Will develop and grow Out of this stage And continue to mature Into young adulthood
1: Yeah so it's kind of like Doing your own piece Of um, getting rid of this trauma From generations And and just focusing on Mm -hmm on on just doing better doing better doing the best you can um and i really mm-hmm. like that piece about like um looking for the answers of the different like developmental stages because mm-hmm. um like personally i did a lot of that for their like education and stuff because i had to homeschool my kids um for about six months recently um and it was an eye-opener i definitely learned patience that's a fact yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you learn that very quickly i learned patience. Yes. but it- But it also, like you said, like I was like, all right, what should they be learning at this stage? Okay, now I know they Mm should be learning. So when they were struggling with certain stuff or trying to push themselves too far or going too slow, I could kind of gauge, all right, this is a bit normal. And it's all about just taking in this information. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that bit where you're talking about, um, you know, using that same information and thinking back to what it was like for me, I'm definitely going to take that on because I never thought of that, like trying to think back to what was I like at these ages and stuff like that. Um, I think I struggle with the stuff of my kids because they're four and six and I can't remember what I was like when I was four and six but I guess it's like having conversations with your own parents if you're able to to kind of be like you're you're older now being like "Mom, what was I like when I was doing this what was you really thinking and just having those conversations to kind of figure out why you did certain things and how you can adjust that for your kids and yeah that's powerful man that, that's uh, a critical bit a of
0: information Oh, I'm learning a lot from you And I, and I <laughs> forgot to highlight that No, Cameron, your parents become a resource In that sense Because yes, in that early two, three, four, five, six, You can't remember Our, our implicit memory was not div- We were only operating from implicit memory But we didn't have the visual memory So their perspectives informs us Now whether they did everything right or wrong That's neither here or there It's the fact that you can get a perspective because your mom will probably say, yeah, he's acting just like you. Cameron. <laughs> She's doing what you did, Cameron. This is what you get. And so it gives us a bit of information to say, OK, this is normal. Let me breathe through this and expect this. And then mom or dad, how did you respond to this? And that gives you a bit of information to say, do I want to use that skill set tool or maybe not? Do I want to do something more? But one thing that you highlight that's important and I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't say this is that becoming aware of our own traumatic experiences in our own family of origin is supposed to empower us to not parent out of our trauma. And that's important. We cannot parent out of our own trauma. We have to parent to the development of our children. So that means we have to address our own trauma. We have to heal that. We have to make amends with that the best way we can. And sometimes we can't Kill all of our trauma. So it's just not like that, but we learn to manage it. When when certain things or certain sounds or certain environments that we may find ourselves in that was traumatic for us as a children, we may not ever fully heal from that where it doesn't have an emotional response, but we can learn how to become aware of it and we can learn how to manage it make sense of it. And then it gives us information. That's, I got to make sure that my children does not have that unique experience or um Um, um, or interaction in this type of stimuli or environment and we learn to be aware of where is our children's developmental stage and parent towards that and not parent out of our trauma because oftentimes and this is a natural tendency we may be aware of our own pain points from our own life and then we overcompensate in our children to make sure they never have to uh, experience that and then we end up hurting our children because we're overcompensating over here. And as fathers, we do that often with our children's physical sometimes and and their development and being emotionally strong. We overcompensate because we may have been hurt emotionally in certain settings as a children, and we don't want our children to grow through that. So we overcompensate over here and end up creating some different levels of experiences that our children may like. So we have to parent. To the development of our children, and making sure that we're dealing with our own traumatic past as children, so it doesn't show up and hamper our parenting functionality.
1: Here's, here's a question for you. So, mm-hmm. obviously, we're talking about aggressive, um, aggressive parenting. What I kind of want to ask is—is because is you've, you've mentioned a lot about how trauma is so um, in, so, so important in the reason why aggressive parenting happens. Um, Mm -hmm. and obviously trauma can happen to in fact it probably does happen to some form of every child in some some way or another do you feel like aggressive parenting is something that you know white communities communities outside of the black community also have is it something that's just more um aggressive within our own in our own
0: community or is it something that is kind of like world spread oh it's very much it's a universal thing Um, And this is where you can go into the typologies of how traumas look and and what's kind of uniquely behavioral expressions in different groups of people. Um, It looks different, but the response in the nervous system is universal. Okay, it's going to bring up the feelings of depression, fear, feeling trapped, uh, feeling like you can't escape. It's going to bring up uh, sometimes excitement. It's going to bring up some 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 very painful things. Um, but it's not unique. Um, African descendants don't have a patent on traumatic experiences, how it would show up in their parenting pieces. It's a universal thing that oftentimes every group of people have some form of how it violently shows up in a person's life. How we respond to it sometimes could be different. And then in some cultures, there's like cultural apparatuses, there's cultural expressions that kind of attempts to litigate or try to work with those traumas. If it's there. But it's something that, from research, from the scholarship that we see, every single group of people on earth has traumatically transmitted um, painful experiences down from one generation to the next. Um, more so in some respects than others. And sometimes, that interaction may come with a group of people interacting with another group of people and how it shows up in their family functioning as well, too. So you may live in an environment where as a you may be an ethnic group that may be marginalized or repressed in this nation state. And that shows up after generation and generation at a certain point where it impacts the way parents showed up in a healthy way with their children. And so every group the globe have experienced that to some degree. Um, My particular research and study has been looking at African descendants and particularly African descendants in America and how that unique shape of that trauma has looked and how it sometimes um, misconstruedly or um, misinterpreted as culture and look like it's a Black thing. (laughs) And that's not a Black thing. Um, And it's hard for us to see that because it's so innately a part of how we interact with our children how we interact with our moms and fathers we think oh that's just part of being black little do we know that it has nothing to do with being black it has everything to do with the pain that tends to be residual and recycled from one generation to the next mm.
1: I, I used to go through this like um stere- stereotype or scenario in my head where um, like where i live now is in a very white area where like 5% black in this area pretty much or probably just me and my kids mm-hmm. is that it um, I'm being dead real with you. <laughs> but you see, there's this universal thing. See if you can relate with this. Where no matter where you go in the world, if you see another black person, you do the nod. Everyone knows it. Just global nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know yes. why, but it's just universal. <laughs> the nod. I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but um, yeah. So I used to go through this whole like stereotype or scenario of like seeing how these um white families would be with their kids, and it was very like polite and pleasant, and and. um do you know? Do you know what I mean? It's just planet it was so different to the world I grew up, and I was like, "Oh, these kids are going to be soft. They won't know what it." But but it's it's deeper than that. There's like there's elements of them both, and I think it's now coming to a point where you know the black community is trying to see that there's the- we can keep our culture, but we can avoid bringing that trauma along with us. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the key of it. But w- what kind of things do you have um, in terms of like? Um, resources for parents and I guess for kids to a certain extent as well on how they can avoid you know aggressive um parenting or just avoid doing it anymore.
0: Yeah. Um um you know I, I, I um I, what what uh country are you in right now? United Kingdom. Just got United, back <laughs> so you're in the United Kingdom. Okay, just got back home. Okay. Yeah. And so I think it's it's one of those where um yeah here in Minnesota and in, in in the States it's you have to find a family group that's ethnically um, aligned with your the, with health and development and that's family centered. And that's important. Um, I think that's critically important. Um, we as um, in my, or my company, Black Family Blueprint, we have had to look and research this stuff, which I wish this was more blatantly Aware that, I wish there was more resources and availability for parents to be able to interact with sources to help them to improve, help them improve in their parent. But unfortunately, part of the work that I've had to do in my company and as a parent practicing is I had to look this stuff up from various books. I had to find scholarship. I had to connect with um, different community um, resources in the Twin Cities here to be able to tap into who. Who can support me as a father in doing this? Um, um, Who can I learn from? Um, um, Of course, my father was one source, but he had his limitations. And so I I had to figure out like, where do I go? And so, uh, you know, I encourage folks, you know, and, and I can send you this list. I'll send you a link of various different resources. There's several books that I really encourage that every African descendant should have on their shelf. It's it's coming from scholarship, it's coming from research and best practices in the field of black families. And those books would allow you to know who I am as an individual and how I show up, okay? And that's important. Two, what what can I expect in myself as a father, as a parent over time? And what can I expect in my child? over time and be able to be able to just kind of have those resources available and be able to interact with that information and material in enough where you could design how you want to be intentional with your family development. But those two components, connecting with the family source, if not creating your own, is going to be critically important because for one, it's going to help you normalize what you're going through. as a father, as a mother, as co-parents, as husband and wife and as children, when you speak with other families who's going through very similar things who's from your same ethno-cultural experience it gives you a deep breath it gives you a reassurance like whoa okay i thought this was uniquely me i thought i was the only one that yelled at my child from time to time like no this is normal i thought i'm the only one that had this pressure point this point that kind of no it's, it's normal two it helps to create a conversation of exchange where you can hold each other accountable for development. So that self-development piece that we talked about, it becomes a family development component where it helps pull us in better practices as a father, as a mother, and as co-parents. And that's critically important too. Three, having a family, a kind of ethnocultural group like that also supports us in our routine and ritual development with our families. And so you get experiences and, and techniques and ideas on how to establish certain routines in your day in your week in your month with other groups and you can share in some of those values as well too in the group that we have up here in the twin cities we get these our, our family my family cohort we get together at least once a week and we do the different cultural celebrations we homeschool together too so that's a, another key thing that has been very supportive but then we do celebrations together and um, we did the, the kids hang out and go and, and do and, and involve in various activities, whether it's biking, skateboarding, or they're involved with uh, some graffiti stuff lately. Um, and they're involved with those pieces together. So it allows us to create these routines and these activities where the children get to be around other families and other children with similar values. You would, you wouldn't, it's very, it's a very significant thing to be able to understand how that component alone to be able to parent in community allows you to become consciously aware of how you show up as a parent. It's, it's, don't underestimate that because especially when we're talking about aggressive parenting, when we can normalize ourselves, when we can exchange ideas when we share parenting connections, if I could sit down and talk with my son with his, his fictive uncle over here, it's like there's a process that allows that child to receive that message even deeper, especially if it's related to them being able to have that experience with other children in their their community as well too. So parenting in the community is a very strong, resilient factor, a very strong, resilient practice that becomes a factor in decreasing aggressive parenting in our community. But again, going back to the other point, the research is going to be important. We can't parent with the piece that the information is just already supposed to be there. We have to we have to learn as parents. We have to grow. We have to read some books. We have to read books that are connected to our cultural identity. We have to look at best pra- practices um, in um, African defam- family making, or b- Black family development and making and see what the research and some of the scholarship is saying so that way it can inform us on how we can show up a little bit better. And sometimes we don't always have the time for that, but that's why connecting with other families help us to create some of that space, that information exchange, and give us some of that resilience that we need. One of the key things that I notice we make often is that we parent in isolation. and that's a dangerous piece because any cultural, any group health, any family health of any child is built by what the village. Is built by a community of people, so we have to parent in community in order to have those resilient factors, in order to decrease aggression, in order to help children see a system of behaviors that's expected of them, in order for us as parents to have the health and the function that we need to be um, to, to, to be to show up well. But again, it goes back to those three things: self care, self reflection, and self development. And those are the tactical pieces you're going to do every day to make sure that you're showing up um, with the right interactions with our children and our wife, our co-parent who's a part of that experience.
1: No, it's powerful. I definitely relate with that whole like, you you know, um, it takes a village to um, to raise a child. I definitely, I've just come back from Bali and there's so many different mm. community groups that have that. And I'm desperate for that in the UK. It's such a beautiful thing. And it's not just about feeling like you have to homeschool to get that same experience. It's just, you can literally go down to the park, be around your kind of community of people and you all have that mm-hmm. like-mindedness of wanting to see your kids grow. and nour- It's such a beautiful thing to, to witness mm-hmm. and more importantly, mm-hmm. to be a part of. So I can definitely relate with that. Um, and yeah, just off what you said in terms of there's like specific books that you think definitely people should have on their shelves. Can you name just one yes. book that you think would be huge for people to kind of just start off, you know, building that library?
0: Yes, I'm uh, not only <laughs> my name it. I'm going to show you um, this automatically. Resmaa Manikin, um Growing Up My Grandmother's Hands. That's not inverse, is it? That's, that's OK. No, 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 that's fine. This, yeah. okay, this automatically should be on every Um, Black parents' shelf. Um, This is going to help us to do the investigation of how we're showing up and how we calming ourselves and doing some of that ancestral or kind of like that nervous system work. So this right here is an important piece. Um, I'm a fan um, because I've met her and been a part of her piece. Growing up again, By um What's her name Uh uh, Isley Clark My wife is really close with her And this piece right here Allows us to do Some deeper Reflecting of our own socialization And gives us a perspective Of what to expect When we're working With our children In certain developmental stages I'm trying to see What else do I have here That I can just Right off the bat Provide you With um There's one more Back here I love it Yes 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 Um um, Olele Africa. I love this book. Um, I, I, I've, I've tried this one, The Handbook of Raising Black Children and is by Olele Africa. and don't let the title misconstrue you because when he's, he's synonymously connected black to African descendants. So this book can apply to if you're growing up in the Caribbean and, to, and, and um, in Brazil or if you're in the UK. This book right here is a a must read because his perspective of connecting the family developmental process with the cultural apparatus becomes vitally important. And he has a lot of powerful jewels on creating routines, rituals, helping us understand where our children is at, the cultural connections to those pieces, and how to show up in a way where we can be expecting of our child's behaviors and we know how to create the routines and the practices around them. So this is three right off the bat that I think is gonna be critically important. But I got about 10 more that I could throw in a link for you so that way you can have this piece. And then more concretely, concretely next year, um, and I'm gonna stay connected with you, Cameron, um, uh, we offer workshops. We have a workshop with our company called Black Secure Attachment for Family Empowerment. And that goes into understanding the developmental stages of our children, How to repair trauma and how to create secure connection with our children over time to where it becomes a part of their locus of control and their temperament to always have a secure sense of their emotional and mental well-being when they're interacting with the world around them. And that comes from what we do with them um, as their parents early on. Again, how do we create those systems? How do we make sure we're communicating with them on certain things? How do we set expectations? How do we create healthy boundaries around them? How do we give them experiences that allow them to learn? How do we create appropriate consequences for them? So in Black Secure Attachment for Family Empowerment, we go over a whole list of those pieces so we can know what that means and what that look like. Um, we have another workshop that we do called Parenting Through White Supremacy. Where in that workshop, we're really breaking down how systemic dynamics impact us as parents and how we show up. But it goes deeply into some supplemental things that we can provide in working with our children, developing their cultural identity, developing on their racialization process and their experience with whiteness around them and what we need to do in our home piece to make sure that our children are growing up with a healthy um, ethnic self-concept of themselves. That's a critical, important piece for their health and development. Children have to know what's their ethnicity, how can they be proud of this heritage, and how does this show up, and how do I interact with that um, in their everyday environment? And that starts with our fathering practices and our mothering practices on an everyday basis. What type of music are we exposing them to daily? What type of foods, what type of interactions in the community are we exposing them to? What values and morals are we teaching them to and how does it connect to our peoplehood development and peoplehood development in children starts with them having a healthy connection with their family, then their extended family, and then their peoplehood and their culture and that connection. And that's how children develop a healthy ethnic self-concept of themselves.
1: I kind of want to ask a bit more. So you've obviously gone a little bit into, you know, the whole company that you own. And the, the, it's called Black mm-hmm. Family Blueprint, if I'm correct. And um, yes, yeah, so tell me a bit about how that became a company, because obviously it's so clear. I'm sure everyone listening can feel it the same. There's a there's an obvious passion for the, the purpose and mission. And it's more than just the company. It's who you are. So how mm. did you turn that passion into a business? And, and, and where are you hoping to take it? If That kind of makes sense. The past, present Absolutely. and future.
0: Absolutely. So um, real briefly, the past is one of those where we me and my wife were struggling as parents like we um, I was showing up with a lot of my trauma in a way I was fathering with my older children and my younger children. Um, she was really working through some pieces herself with her mothering practices and how she wanted to show up with her expectation as a mother. And like we were explaining, we had to go out into the community to figure out how do we get this? Like, how, Who do we need to talk to? We was looking for that one elder in the community that we said, that elder has all the wisdom. Let me go sit down with that elder. <laughs> and it, it, it was like, it was complicated. We didn't find that one elder. And so we, my wife was finishing her BA and she decided to go into this college and take on family science. And so at the time, I just got done with my degree, my BA in history, African-American history. And I wasn't trying to go back to school, but she was having some really good conversations. I'm listening to her in class. And I'm like, yo, this is fun. I I like having these dialogues with you, my wife. And we're already learning some things based off of your experience. And she was really encouraging me. You should go for the master's program. You should do it. I'm like, nah, I ain't trying to go back to school. And so eventually she convinced me. Um, and and I said, okay, I'll try it. And I went back and I had the best experience in my grad program. And so in the midst of her getting her degree done and me learning these new theoretical positionings of family work, um, we started to envision how can we do this full time? And so Um, we started hosting various different spaces and contracting with various organizations to put on parent education courses. And this is before our company came into being and we was getting beautiful reception. We started looking into the research and we started chewing this stuff up from the scholarship level and bringing it into the practical conversation with real live families. And the experience we was creating and having was teaching us so much. And we realized it started to transform how we were showing up as parents. And that's when the light bulb went off. We got something here and we need to adjust our career plans to be able to create something around us that we can possibly do this more strongly. And so hence, the first title was African-American Enhancement Family Project, African-American Family Enhancement Project, but that was long title. And eventually my wife, she landed on Black Family Blueprint because We were trying to figure out what the blueprint was, and we realized every African descendant have to create their blueprint on how they design their families. And hence, if we provide the scholarship, bring it down to a community and people level, and then make sure, I ain't going to say bring it down, but bring it over, and then make sure that it becomes this process where the community, our ethnicity, our peoplehood contribute to this wealth of knowledge on how we do family. Then we're creating an environment where families can be enriched, empowered, can heal and can really build the first institution that we're born in, which is the family. And that's from there. We, um, three years ago, we went in and we, we decided to register the business. We already had three workshops that we were doing in the community. And we at one point in time said we have to crystallize what this looked like in a real um, workshop service model way. And then we came up with parenting through white supremacy. Then eventually I designed Black Safe, Black Secure Attachment for Family Empowerment. And then we had, I designed another project, another service called Black uh, intimacy of blackness. And that focuses on the healthy relationships of black couples to make sure that the foundation of the family is these two people knowing how to be involved with each other in a healthy way. And so from there, the company just spent and took off. And so we're hoping that we become not only uh, a service model to be able to model and support other companies to do this across the nation, but we're also looking for a way to be able to train people in, to be certified, to be able to be parent coaches, have Black fam- uh, African-American family coaches to be able to support black families more visually and more intimately because our coaching practices, it's heavy. Um, We got a lot of families that we're supporting, but we can't do this all by ourselves. We're just two individuals. So now we have to create a very strong certified track that has theory, practice and support mechanisms with our curriculums to be able to bring in other parents and other families to be able to support other families to get into that process and to, to kind of create health vitality in their own families as well, too. We're also just trying to make sure that we become a research center so that way african descendant families will have the material available on how to create healthy families. And they don't have to do what we did, go all over the place to try to find it and bring it together. We want to create kind of like a synthetic synthesis, a spot where you can just come in and you have a list of books like I'm going to send you. Um, you have workshops and resources. You have connections to other places that may be close to you and organizations that we've interviewed and connected with that does similar work. And then it would allow us, uh, uh, our, our company, to become a resource hub on, um, on spaces where you can go and get the information, material and connect with other African descended families to be able to empower what you're doing as a, a father or a mother
1: incredible man it's like you're building your own village like you said and, and as you've said before it's like the village is what creates that and i think it's crazy that you're you know you've obviously gotten all this knowledge you've brought it down now sorry brought it over shall we say again um and and now you're 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 not just teaching it to, um to the people who need it directly but you're now at that stage where you're trying to get other people into um learning mm-hmm. this stuff so they can teach it onwards which i think is huge and that just proves like this is bigger than just one person one family one culture is huge it involves all of us getting involved and and having that discussion with ourselves on how are we parenting, mm-hmm. in how can we do better um and how can we make sure we're not being aggressive <laughs> um yes. but yeah agent <laughs> thank you so much for this interview we're definitely thank gonna you. have a n- little chat after this anyway because there's so much that i've learned myself i hope those listening have learned loads as well i've been cameron this is an agent and you've been listening to the dope black dad podcast. See you in the next one.
0: See you in the next one. Dope, Dope Black Podcast.